Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to What the Fab, a fan's first sports network fantasy baseball show where there are no silly questions. Be sure you're subscribed by searching for fans first sports network fantasy. We will have plenty of content for you in the off season, looking at drafts, getting you ready for your drafts. But we still have one week to go here in the season for 2023. And as always, I'm Sarah Sanchez, and I'm here to break down what's going on in fantasy baseball with some of the greatest minds in the industry. Today, we're checking in on that final week with Scott Panowski. You know Scott from his excellent work at Yahoo Fantasy Sports. He is an FSWA Hall of Famer, and I'm thrilled to have him here to discuss what we learned this season in fantasy and more. How's it going, Scott? Doing great, Sarah. Really looking forward to uh, talking some baseball. You're one of my favorite people in the industry, a tremendous follow on Twitter. And I get to live vicariously because, you know, you had, I know you don't have season tickets to the Cubs. It feels like you do. So um, <laughs> I've, I've enjoyed, you have the best printing also on a scorecard I've ever seen. So okay, always so, great to uh, to touch base with a baseball fan and a friend and, uh, and have some fun. Well, high praise, two things there. Number one, uh, I just happen to watch a lot of baseball. And now that I live five blocks from Wrigley Field, if the choice is sitting on my couch and watching it with like a cup of tea or something and sitting at Wrigley Field and watching it with a scorecard, I'm going to always pick that if I can do that. And the ticket's about 20 bucks. So I'm lucky to live here and I don't take it for granted. It is a wonderful thing to be able to just walk to that historic ballpark, watch a game and walk home. And I will do it as long as I am able the handwriting thing is funny because a few years ago, I was, I was leading a debate lab at the University of Michigan, and I fell and broke my hand, actually. And so I, I'm always nervous about my handwriting. Like my hand, my right hand is not as strong as it used to be. And so I'm like super conscientious of it. So I appreciate you liking my handwriting. With a little bit of jealousy, too. I, I had dreadful handwriting as a kid. I remember they used to grade us as a class on our handwriting. And one of my teachers, like, lambasted me. She's like, you're holding back the, the class grade. And, and I, I, you know, this is one of those things I'm old enough now that I have memories as a kid that I don't even know if they're actually true or not. I think I said something snarky about I'm, I'm going to type for a living. It's not going to matter. I want to <laughs> believe I want to believe that I said that, but I, I don't know if I really did. Uh, I do know my my handwriting is print is dreadful, um, but we live in a world where, you know, it, it's all typing and texting and, you know, electronics and stuff like that. So I, I admire people who have cool printing. I don't have it, but I admire people who do. Well, I, in my world, you definitely said that to your teacher. And also, like, as a former teacher, shame on your teacher for telling you that. Those are the types of things that stay with kids forever, as evidenced by this conversation. Like, I remember my version of that conversation. Mm-hmm. I always had a kind of cluttered desk. Like, my desk had too many things going on. Like, the mm-hmm. inside of it, the books weren't lined up really neat. And I'd get a paper askew here or there. And in sixth grade, I had a teacher who made me stay after school and be late for dance practice to clean out, to clean out my desk. And as I was cleaning up my desk, he told me I was never going to be able to amount to anything. I was always going to be under my potential because I couldn't keep my desk organized. And I was just furious about the whole thing. I think I've done okay for myself. So I was just like, thanks for that sixth grade teacher who shall remain nameless because I don't want to shame you on my podcast. You know, it's it's funny. One of my best friends is a teacher and I, I have tremendous, actually a couple of my good friends are teachers. I have tremendous respect for the profession. I think it's just one of the most noble things you can do. And I'm incredibly grateful. Uh, Chelmsford High School class of 1987. I had great teachers. I can remember like the two or three I didn't like, but I mean, my overwhelming 
education experience was positive and encouraging and, and nurturing, just all the things a teacher should be. It sparks imagination and, and conversations. I had teachers who would recommend books that I might want to read that had nothing to do with the class that we were in, stuff like that. And I just feel so lucky because not everybody has that experience. And the, the bad experiences I have were the, the rare ones, the, the occasional bad apple that you get. But um, just if you're in that space, just, just remember how much this, this stuff leaves fingerprints and, and you're making a, a mark on somebody's life. I, I think most teachers are inherently good. Um, so not, not that many negative experiences to go with, but it's just funny how you, you're going to always remember those, the couple of them that didn't go right, even though I, I was extremely fortunate. My high school was very good and I had the right type of people at the time in your life that you need them. I know Chelmsford real well in Massachusetts, right? That's right. Yeah, I taught at Lexington High School in Massachusetts. We used to debate against Chelmsford. I remember you used to live in New England. Yeah, we talked a little bit about this because I was wondering why you had a Red Sox tie-in. In fact, uh, to steer it back to baseball. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, Chelmsford uh, grew up. Um, Chelmsford, we, we just finally sold the house that I grew up in. So that was a kind of a bittersweet moment in the summer. But so it's it's high school. I'm like a freshman, maybe in high school, maybe I've been in eighth grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, whatever. I go to a hockey game between Chelmsford High and Bill Ricca High, who's their rival next town over. My, my good friend Steve Gleason, a Chelmsford grad, is now teaching at Bill Ricca. So he's now bleeding uh, Indian green instead of uh, the Chelmsford Lions colors. But so I go to this hockey game and I see this Bill Ricca hockey player and he scores a goal and he scores another goal and he scores another goal. He ends up scoring five goals, this Bill Ricca guy, including one right off the face off. I'd never seen that before. They dropped the puck. He snaps it in the net. And I said to myself, this, this Glavine is pretty good. G-L-A-V-I-N-E. I, I thought it was Glavine. I didn't know how you pronounce it. His name was Tom Glavin, <laughs> who was actually drafted in, I believe, the fourth round to the LA Kings. Back in American hockey, nobody respected it. So if they took you in the fourth round, they thought you were pretty good. And, and the only reason I think Glavin didn't go earlier, other than being an American player, was that he had a baseball track as well so they weren't really sure if they were going to get him for hockey i still think tom gladwin would have been a good nhl player maybe not a hall of famer obviously a hall of famer in baseball part of that great braves pitching staff with smoltz and and gladwin and, and smoltz and uh, maddox and all those guys but um yeah i saw tom Glavin. first time i saw tom gladwin was on a hockey ring scoring five goals against my high school team that's wild and amazing um and yeah let's bring it bring it back to baseball for a minute you know Tom Glavin is an excellent example of, of something I want to talk about later in the show, which is how the new rules affected starting pitchers, because I think there were a handful of pitchers who were just inexplicably um, impacted by the pitch clock, by the pickoff moves in ways that other people weren't. It's true. It's going to inform my draft strategy for sure going in to next year. But, be, but before we get to that, before we get to our look ahead at next season and whatnot, I wanted to maybe do a little bit of, you know, looking at what we did so far this season, what we liked, what we didn't like. I, I will at the top say this was not my best fantasy season across the board. I mean, I'm usually middle of the pack in, in, in a bunch of my leagues. Um, I have a couple of leagues where I'm fighting to stay in like the 10th, 11th spot and out of those bottom four or five spots as, as the season goes on. And the league that I was strongest in, you know, I, I kind of faltered a little bit at the end. I'm currently sitting at fifth in the 12 team tout wars league. And, and I see a path to get into the top three by the end of the week, but a lot of stuff is going to have to go right for that to happen. I'm probably not going to fall out of the top five, but I'm it's definitely been a rough year uh, with injuries and with grinding with all of that stuff. I'm curious, Scott, how's your fantasy season gone? It's been a very ordinary season for me and, and kind of a disappointing season because I had, a, I really was hopeful if we had talked in, in May or June, I would have said, I, I think this is going to be a really good fantasy season. I wasn't able to go to Tout Wars. I got sick right before the Tout Wars um, auction or salary cap draft, depending on what you use for that phrase. And the great Ron Chandler offered to get my team for me in, in the mixed league. He, he did the auction for me. We talked. We had a great conversation. I, I set up a grid for him of how I felt about the entire player pool, and I highlighted guys I liked, highlighted guys I definitely, definitely didn't want. And he produced a team even though we didn't have a lot of time to prepare, this all came together in the final kind of couple of days before the draft. He got a team that represented how I felt and it was a contending team. It was in the top three or four for a, a decent chunk of the season. And then injuries kind of kicked in. I didn't make the right fab pickups, probably wasn't listening enough to your podcast. And I'm going to finish in the middle of the pack, maybe even in the second half of that league, even though I thought this, and I, Ron and I were talking about, I said, if we win this league, we're going to share that sandwich that you, you, get the designate. I don't know if they still even do that. Oh, they but, do. 
<laughs> yeah. So I've, it's always been a dream of mine. I've never won tout where I've come in second a handful of times, but my tout wars record, I want to, there's plenty of things in the industry I've done that I'm proud of, but I, my tout wars record is very so-so and I'm, I'm not thrilled about that. I came in second in labor last year. Uh, the great Steve Gardner, uh, another another guy who's a Hall of Famer. We went in the same class and a, a really good friend. I liked my labor draft a lot this season. I was in the hunt. And again, you know, some injuries kicked in. I did have a very injured team, whatever. I, I also made some bad fab pickups and I made a couple of trades. Not many people trade in labor. And I decided I made a couple of trades that I really didn't think were maybe the best trades. But I'm like, well, I don't have the team composition to win. Maybe I'm taking on more risk than the other person is here, but I'd rather at least give myself a shot and, and shoot my shot. And if, it, if it's a brick, it's a brick. And both trades were total bricks. So one trade, just the, the players I traded for got hurt right away. One trade, I just, I think I mis- misjudged the value. And it, it looked, it's a trade that looks really stupid like two or three weeks later. So I don't know if I should have been more patient, if I should have been more stubborn, say, okay, I'll just have to play with these guys. I don't know. Maybe, I mean, if I hadn't gone for it, I might sit back and say, Sarah, I should have tried to make a trade. Why was I afraid? What, what am I afraid of? I mean, you know, when I'm coming fifth or sixth, what's the big you know, sin there? Just at least it's better to try and to fail than to never try at all. But um, I don't know. The bottom line is this. I was really hopeful this might be my year in labor. This might be my year in tout. And it's, it's, I'm going to finish far out of the quote-unquote money of the podium spots, uh, even despite those good starts. I might win one league that I'm in. It's a Michigan-based auction. Really cool league. Peter Morrison, that league, is a renowned baseball writer. Used to be a Hall of Fame voter. I'm not sure if he's still a Hall of Fame voter. The guy who hosts that draft is this guy named David McGregor, who's a playwright. A playwright. So I, I call that my literary league because there's a bunch of writers in that league. And it's um, the auction takes forever. It takes all day. <laughs> it's kind of like untimed. But what I just steer into it. I used to like look at that and be a little frustrated by it. I'm like, oh, it's okay. That's the cadence of this league. We have a full day to hang out. And it's all about the life is about experiences and friendships and fellowship and all that. I, you know, so I I've learned to enjoy that nine hour auction, even though it may sound really tedious to some people, I think I might win that league. And that's a fun league. You only get uh, 20 pickups during the season. You can make them anytime you want, but you only get 20. And I don't know, we might talk a little bit about it today. I, I looked at the 20 pickups I've made during the season. I think like five or six or seven of them, I would call a hit. A few of them are kind of in the middle of the road, and some of them are just dreadful. Some, a couple of guys didn't even ever play for me. And it just reminds me that you you can miss a lot in this game, right? In baseball, right? You make an out 70% of the time, you, you're doing pretty well. That's kind of the rule of thumb with these pickups and these fab and all that stuff that you don't have to be right all the time. You just have to be right at the right times on the right players, and it can make a major impact to your season. Anyway, a very long answer to, yeah, I'm having kind of a mediocre season. It's been a fun season, but kind of a mediocre season. It's really interesting. You said a bunch of things there that I'd love to jump off on. But, you know, I think about the way the things we hit on and the things we miss and why uh, the probably and we we can go here right now. just talking about um, some of our favorite pickups of the season. I managed to get Matt McLean in Tout Wars and also in well, one of the many leagues I'm playing in on the NFBC this year. I think it might have been TGFBI, but if it's not TGFBI, it's an auction league. But that was right about the time where people were starting to run out of fab money. And I had just been, I did not bid enough in the early parts of the season to get the guys who came first, right? Like I, I was not getting the big, all the arms that came up, like all of the Tanner Bybee, Logan Allen, right? Like I, Bryce Miller, I think was one, like I was just, I was getting outbid on all these guys for like $50. Finally got Matt McLean. Finally got Yuri Perez. That was less a function of me guessing right on Matt McLean and Yuri Perez and more a function of other people ran down on money and both of those dudes happened to be available and I finally caught up to the market and put enough money down for each of them to get them on my teams. They were both excellent for my teams. Obviously, uh, Yuri Perez shut down right now, but the and Matt McLean as well, although he might come back for this last week of the season. That's not brilliance. That's just luck. Like there's no, you know, I could have been the girl who picked up, I don't know, some, I'm trying to think like Taj Bradley instead of Yuri Perez. And that's Mm -hmm. a very different pickup and it costs you more money and you did it earlier in the season. I think that a lot of this is just being in the right place at the right time. You also mentioned trades, you know, uh, Casey Bubba and I, Brian Entrican, were, were trying real hard to put together a trade. There was a moment in Tout Wars earlier this season, right, right before the All-Star break. Um, he had way too many home runs and st- stolen bases. I had 
way too much really great pitching. And, and we were trying to do a swap of Spencer Strider for Corbin Carroll. The only reason that didn't happen is it was like the day before Corbin Carroll left like holding his shoulder. And I was like, yeah, I need to see another week. <laughs> I need to see another week. And by the time we both got to a point where that deal might've happened, Nathan Avaldi had hit the injured list and I couldn't trade Spencer Strider anymore. And so it was just one of the, you know, just kind of weird the way the season goes on. I, I, Looking back, don't know what that would have done for both of our teams. I might go back and have Bubba on in the offseason and, and take a look at the trade that wasn't. But a lot of this is luck and a lot of it is timing and just getting it right. And But you you put yourself in a position to be lucky by making moves, by, by being involved in the waiver wire, by knowing what's going on with your league, how much fab you need to spend, how much, what your fab rules are. You know, in Tout Wars, one of the things I love is that you can redeem some of the players that you missed on for fab. And so it takes a little bit of the sting out of losing like a Jeffrey Springs, which I did in like five different leagues this year where I, when I can get a little bit of fab back and try to find somebody else to replace that arm. But uh, maybe my, one of my favorite pickups this year was Matt McClain. And because Tout has an unlimited IL, I'm going to maybe get five more games of Matt McClain to see if I can chase my way into the top four, or top three here. Yeah, a lot of interesting things to, to bounce off with that. For one thing, I'd forgotten just how great Jeffrey Springs was for the first couple of starts. We, we actually were doing that auction I talked about earlier when he was pitching against Detroit, and it felt like he struck out 27 guys. I mean, he, he was unhittable that day, and he would have had a great season if he stayed healthy. Healthy. Uh, the great Fred Zinke, who was one of the labor trade partners who ate my lunch. I'd never trade with Fred Zinke. Bad idea. <laughs> he has a great fab ethos, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing it. He probably says it a lot more elegantly than I'm about to, but he tries to make his fab bids like he's trying to come in second or third. He's not trying to win the bid. He's trying to make a competitive bid. And if he gets the player, great. He got him at a price he likes. If he didn't get the player, that's okay. There'll be something else next week. And I know you and I had a, a conversation about some fab bidding strategy for football. There's a running back you were interested in. You were debating at one point you had kind of a medium bid, and you're a you know competitive bid, but you're not the top of the market bid. You were thinking maybe bumping it up. You held to your guns. You stuck with the, the non 100% bid. Football's different. The season's shorter and the, the pickups feel more important. So it, it's not an apples to apples comparison, but I like that you stuck to your guns and you got your player anyway, who was productive for you, the, the running back forward for the Browns. So again, football, baseball, different sports, but I like that Zinke ethos. To me, a big part of fab and to be a good player, you need to buy at the bottom of the market, the low part of the bucket as much as you can and it's really hard. I know sometimes it's going to be an obvious guy who you know, maybe he wasn't available for bid previously or whatever. He comes up, he's the, he's the guy to get. And you think, oh, do I blow half of my fab here? Do I blow 70% of my fab here? Do I radically change what I have left for the rest of the season? Because this is the guy. I think generally that's a, that's not how I like to do things. And you talked about timing and you, you didn't maybe weren't as aggressive on some of the earlier players. But again, it could be the difference between you know uh, Tanner Bybee and Taz Bradley, I, you know, they're both great prospects. You could have told me that Bradley had Bybee season and vice versa. It would have been plausible to me. I couldn't tell you why one guy was successful and one guy wasn't, other than the, there's a lot of variance in the world. Wrapping this all up, I like that Zinke ethos. I like I like making competitive bids without necessarily going to the mat for people because it's just such a long season and and the cadence of fab changes. You know, later in the season, people go back to school. Uh, people go on vacation, football comes in, which is, I, I can't deny it. it. It definitely takes away some of my focus and I need to work on that in future seasons to be a better fantasy player. But the difference between early in the season where everybody's bidding and middle of the season where maybe some people aren't bidding in the late part of the season where the people who aren't contending may not even be monitoring their teams is, you know, it's not ideal, but it's a fact of life. It just, it's always a sliding scale. It's a sliding ratio. And uh, I just think it's really important that to be a good player, you need to be early on things or you need to be buying when it isn't, oh, I'm competing for with 11 other people for this one hot player. Yeah, I think that's spot on. I'm definitely going to steal Fred's ethos there on trying to come in second on some of these fab bids. I think that's a really smart strategy. And, um, you know, there's a couple of guys on our list of our favorite pickups this season. One who you've got here in particular, who's also on, would have been on my list um, in some other leagues. And that's Adbert Alzali, who this is one of those situations where you've got a guy who was a top end prospect who really flamed out as a starter. He couldn't stay healthy and 
he had a really terrible lefty split problem. And like, look, I know it's not that big. You know, oh, righty can't throw to lefties. News at 11. Like, that's not that's that's not the point. The point is that he was getting mashed like he was giving up more home runs against lefties than just about any guy in the league. And just the move to the bullpen, being able to air it out a little bit, getting a little bit more juice on his pitches made him really effective in that short inning situation. Uh, I'm curious to see what happens. I believe he is eligible to come off the IL today and everything I'm hearing out of Chicago is that they are going to bring him back and that he'll just slide right back into that closer role. He has been phenomenal. I got him an auto new this year. I think I got him for like a pretty low bid because he wasn't a guy that people were keeping an eye on. And, and I backed him up with, um, Cody Hoyer, who I think the Cubs also have an eye on as a future closer, like a cost-controlled late-end option. But curious, uh, where did you pick up Advert, and what did he do for your season? Yeah, he was on a bunch of my teams. Just as a case of quality innings, he's going to have a leverage role. If it's closing, great. If it's not closing, this is a, sh a major shift, as you well know, any baseball fan knows. With starting pitchers going so much shorter in games, just more wins are distributed to relief. And there's a lot more value. I think a lot of people have been hip to for you know, probably 10, 5, 10, 15 years. They've understood that relievers who aren't closing can still help you because they're dominating your ratios. But they help you even more so now because they can pick up wins because more wins are distributed to guys who didn't start the game. It's, it's just not that uncommon to see somebody pitches well for four or five innings and they get taken out anyway because they hit a pitch count. They're going to hit the top of the order for the third time. People don't want to mess with that. You know, Sometimes guys are, are being... You know, Look at what they're doing with Kershaw right now. They don't want to overextend him. He's pitching basically five innings to start. And I admit, as somebody you know who's been a baseball fan for a long time, I, I have mixed feelings on this. I mean, when teams are doing smart things, you want to get behind that. But I also do miss the day when the starting pitcher may go six or seven innings routinely. It just feels like this doesn't happen anymore. When somebody throws a complete game, I want to start hugging strangers. But teams are allowed to be smart. And, and you know, it's smart, right? You got a guy who's tired. You have people in the bullpen who can come and throw with their hair on fire. Back to Adbert, it's just a matter of, okay, this guy's a good pitcher. As you said, you know, the shape of his performance was different. As a reliever, as it so often is, it's the starting and relieving is, is totally apples to oranges. It's a totally different world. What you're asked to do, how much you can just let it all hang out and, and max out. Maybe you're only pitching for an inning or two. And he was actually having some of those multiple inning appearances which is really valuable for a reliever because you have much better chance of maybe picking up a win or a rogue save here or there so i identified him as a skills guy i liked with the cherry on top of maybe he'll be a closer they had other candidates as you know they tried different guys and eventually he settled in and so often with closing if you get the first couple of conversions you become the easy button they start pressing it so he's somebody who was it's been disappointing that he's been hurt and you know unfortunate that's a part of baseball of course and certainly a part of pitching but this year, I did not spend. I generally do not go after the first-tier closers. And I know we've been looking at some mock drafts on the tout table and you know all the stuff that Todd Zola runs. He's what a great guy he is. And people are spending really early prices for closers. That's never going to be me. I'm always going to try to get the no-stars-just-talent bullpen or the bunch of Bs and B-pluses or speculative guys. And and this year, it worked out. I mean, I ended up getting pickups for closers. I ended up getting um, some of the second and third tier closers. I got Diaz, who wasn't that hot of a prospect uh, for, for safe, you know, maybe 11th, 12th, 13th round in labor, something like that. Doval had some closing experience with the Giants last year, but he wasn't seen as a, as a sure thing. I'm always, I, I get it that in competitive leagues, everybody's trying to get those guys too. It's not like in, an, in a league that's not competitive, you can just almost not draft saves at all. I'll just get all the closers off the waiver wire. But if you're in a competitive league, that doesn't work. Everybody wants those guys too. But I still feel like not being the, the most aggressive saves drafting team or save spending team is, is the way to go. I, I don't, I'm never going to be that third round closer person. It's so interesting that you bring that up. I actually played around with this strategy a bit in some different formats. And so I had like three gladiator teams and then I had my, um, I did a draft and hold at first pitch Arizona last season, which here's the episode episodic plug for go to first pitch Arizona. If you have not been, it is an excellent place to be. You will meet so many people and learn so many things. I just come out of it very energized for draft season in a way that plus you get to watch the AFL, which is, I imagine what spring training used to be like where it was like, Oh, you're there and, and cheap seats and good beer. And like, you can see everybody and just talk to people and you're not, Nobody's trying to sell you a, an exhibition game for the same thing it costs to go to a major league baseball game. Anyway, 
off my soapbox, but first pitch Arizona rules. And if you haven't signed up yet, you should sign up. Um, the closer situation is interesting. In the most competitive leagues I was in, what I was aiming to do was get one of those last, yes, I'm sure this guy is a closer, guys, and speculate a little bit. And so mm -hmm. what that meant is I wound up with a lot of Ryan Presley, wound up with a lot of Alexis Diaz, wound up with um, Adbert in a handful of places, and I wound up with guys like Andres Munoz or Paul Seawald, and not a lot of like – I. The only places I wound up with a Liam Hendricks or a Josh Hader were in the gladiator drafts where I played around because I did like one of those packages where you get three gladiator drafts. And for those of you who aren't familiar, this is a fun competition. I am definitely going to play in it again next year. You basically only draft your players. That's it. There's no bench. There are no moves. It is a draft competition and you are stuck with whatever you've got. Um, and so because I did three different ones, I tried to mix it up. A little bit to make sure that I didn't have all of the same guys on all three of my teams. I have one gladiator team that looks like it's going to finish in the top two, knock on wood, that it can hold on for that last week. But it's all about, you know, did you draft guys who are healthy? Did you draft guys who kept their job all season? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, and that's a lot harder to do than it seems like it is at the outset. But those were the only places where I did the elite closer draft. And I didn't love the rest of my team as a result. Like, I, I hate sacrificing stolen guys who can get steals and hit for power because the, somebody might get a save. Like, I just, I've never loved that strategy. It doesn't make sense to me from a value perspective. It's like one category versus four categories, and I hate that. And so um, that, that was nice reinforcement, too, that I'm going to keep with the late closer, get some somebody who's got the job, and also add on to it. I love it. We have the same closer ethos. We, we as the great Dave Damashek would say, we park our cars in the same garage. I, <laughs> and when you, and again, when you take the third round closer, it's like in fantasy football, if you take the early tight end and you're like, well, why don't I like my wide receivers? Oh, cause I took a tight end in the second round. You know, I uh, look, I mean, Travis Kelsey's great. He went in the first round. He's trading Taylor Swift. Now that's all wonderful. You know, <laughs> if, you, if you took Mark Andrews in the second round, you're not very happy right now, but uh, football is just a game of, of chaos and, man it's um it's fun but it, it's just chaotic anybody who's listening who doesn't play fantasy football i i almost envy you because football is so it's so emotionally ringing um every monday my head is just spinning but yeah i i love the way you frame that I'm, and i'm always going I, i'm another player who i got a lot of shares of was evan phillips the um the la bullpen was not defined before the season he had a case and and you know when people talk about all oh, oh, the safe striation more teams use committees again this Ties into fantasy football, more running backs, uh, backfields are by committee, right? And people say, well, that's stressful. I, I want to have these studs who get 40 saves. I want to have these stud running backs who get all the touches. I've actually gone the other way on that, where we, if you find, you mentioned the Seattle guys, right? If you drafted one of them and you knew that they were going to get 13 to 15 saves, that's a hit. That's good. You don't need to have three fire-breathing dragons getting 40 saves anymore like you used to, or two stud running backs in your fantasy football team. You have one and you kind of have ham and egg at the other positions. That totally works. I actually find that it helps me sleep at night. I, I find that actually helps me relax the striation and saves because now if you find, you know, Phillips, I, I look now, he has 23 saves. When I drafted him, if you just tap me on the shoulder and said, you're going to get 12 saves from him and he'll have good ratios, I'm like, great. Sign me up. This is like round 16. I love it. Even the support guy, you ended up with like Gratterall on that team. 65 knockout innings, seven saves. His ERA is barely over one. You know, I, that that's a hit too. Um, so I've learned a lot of people say you know, the current shape of saves is stressful. I actually think it's more relaxing because you smaller hits are more impactful for you. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And I think that, you know, you you were talking about saves here. I think that saves and wins, part of the reason they're frustrating is because it's the place where the fantasy game diverges a lot from the regular game. Like David Ross is not over there trying to figure out how to get Justin Steele a win. Not even if it helps some like Cy Young case that probably doesn't exist anymore after he got blown up a couple of times in the last couple of weeks, tears, but that's okay. More important that the Cubs get themselves to the postseason than that Justin Steele uh, gets an extra win. But that's not David Ross's concern is not who his closer is for purposes of some sort of like Adbert will get 30 saves. He wants to win the baseball game, right? Mm -hmm. And so if that means that Adbert closes sometimes and Julian Merriweather gets a handful of saves and Mark Leiter gets a handful of saves, he's going to do that. And I think that we stress ourselves out as fantasy players trying to find the place that, like the handful of places or the handful of guys who are an ever decreasing 
number of players who can get those win and save categories. And the game just doesn't align there as much anymore, right? Like, and, and you know, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsors. But on the flip side, I think we can talk about some of these rules changes, some other guys who to keep an eye on uh, in the upcoming season who are really taking advantage of some of those rules changes and some other things. But wins and saves are going to continue to decline. And so any place where you can bump your odds of getting those wins and saves without blowing up your ratios will be helpful. Uh, quick break. All right. We're back. Um, you know, one of the places where I think the rules changes probably impacted the game as much as anything, and I, I'm surprised by this because it did not go the way I thought it would go. It's the stolen base situation. And part of what I find so intriguing here, and I've not done a deep dive on this yet. I plan to do one before first pitch Arizona, but it seems like this was not distributed the way people thought it would be. Like or in the preseason, I was on a lot of panels talking to a lot of people and everybody kind of thought, oh yeah, we well, take a guy who got 10 steals last year and he'll get 15 this year. Take a guy who got 15 last year, he'll get 20 this year. And that did not happen. It actually seemed like a handful of guys went from being 20 steal stolen base guys to 40 stolen base guys or 30 stolen base guys to hello, Ronald Acuna Jr. with 68 steals. Like, Meanwhile, another subset of those guys who were stolen base guys in the past, Jose Ramirez, Trey Turner, they just kept their numbers flat. They didn't do, they didn't take that jump to the next level of stolen base guys for whatever reason. And then a bunch of guys who used to give you seven, eight, nine, ten bags, looking at you, Kyle Schwarber or Anthony Rizzo, they just stopped running altogether. So mm -hmm. I'm curious for steals in particular. I find that one, there were a lot more stolen bases, but two, they were distributed among less players. And that is going to make drafting for steals next year super interesting. What do you think? Yeah, what a great uh, take that was. Uh, it's it's complicated. It, it wasn't, I think your inferences, your guesstimates before the season were all reasonable and practical and plausible. And yet the distribution was not at all what I expected. Although anybody who was listening to you, and, and I know this helped me, I, I got Nico Horner on a bunch of my teams in part because it, you know, we overlooked defense, right? You you said he's a great defensive player. I know he's not the shortstop anymore, but he's going to have a role on this team. You should draft him, and I did, and I, I appreciate that you steered me to him. But you know, why do players why do players steal bases, right? And what everybody who is a good offensive player, for the most part, there it's because they can hit, they can get on base, and the stolen base we, we've seen before this year teams had gotten smart and realized stolen bases aren't worth it. The game is so dominated by getting on base and hitting home runs and the value of being on first and stealing second, maybe scoring on a single, but just not the way we're trying to score anymore. So let's not even try to steal bases anymore. This rule change, I think, came at the right time to save the stolen base. I think it was coming close to dying out of the game. But why do some players steal bases and why do some players don't? I mean, one of the reasons why Ronald Acuna is going to have a 40-70 season is he wants to do it. And he's young and, and his body can handle stealing bases is really stressful on your body. And it, it brings in a lot of injury risk. Is Trey Turner at a point in his career where he's going to stop having interest in, in stealing bases? We've seen with Mike Trout, right? I mean, it, man, it's, just, it's sad to talk about Mike Trout right now. I'm really worried he might be like the Ken Griffey Jr. in his 30s where we talk about how great he was in his 20s. And then I wish he could stay healthy. I wonder if the Angels will look into trading him. I, I Obviously, we've seen the best of Mike Trout already, but... At some point in the last few years, he just decided it's not worth the wear and tear to my body to steal bases anymore. And I, and I get that. I think he's doing the right thing. I, If you're trying to get steals, I, the bottom line is this. It's, Gene McCaffrey used to say it's more about the, the will a lot of times than the skill with this with stolen bases. Is it worth it for the players to do it? You talked about Kyle Schwarber. I would have thought a reasonable projection before the season was you know at least – six to 10 steals. And if he feels like it, maybe 15 or 20. I also thought Kyle Schwarber would be helped by the shifting rules and would have a batting average that would be quasi playable, which of course hasn't happened at all. Kyle Schwarber is just doing the three true outcome thing that he normally does a ton of walks, a lot of home runs and a batting average. I know batting average isn't you know the most modern of stats, but it's still a five by five stat. It's just, um, I, I don't know. I have Kyle Schwarber on teams and I know he's given me more value than he, you know, he's taken away, but it's still, he's still kind of a rough guy for me to, to roster for some reason, but to, to me, stolen base, it comes down to who wants to do it. And the longer I play fantasy, I, I used to write about something called the rule of Anya's all-stars, which were players in their thirties or maybe in the second half of their careers who were overlooked because they weren't, they weren't the hot new thing anymore. And a lot of times I had a lot of these boring veteran players. And as much as that was good to me with Rello Banyas and people still 
remember, sometimes they come back to me and mention Rule of Banyas and that they like that theory. The more I play fantasy, this is critical in football, but I think it's important in baseball too. The more I think I have to have young teams and that's where you're going to find stolen bases. That's where you're going to find healthier players. I want my rosters year over year to get younger. And I think that ties into your stolen base takeaway. Well, it's really interesting that you bring up um, the will to run because the other thing, the other variable here that might change in the next season, I think it very easily could uh, is team philosophy on running. Mm. And so one of the things that I, you know, I'll kind of like spend some time on leaderboards and, we all love the player leaderboards. And if you don't, I use the custom player comparison tool at Fangraphs a lot, particularly late in a fantasy baseball season, looking at over the last 14 days, is this guy still in the lineup? What are they doing? Are they on a cold stretch? Are they on a hot stretch? Like, who do I want to play? But I also look at the team overall stuff, right? Like the Cincinnati Reds have 31 more stolen bases than the next closest team. They are a full Trey Turner above of the next closest team in running. And then you've got a handful of teams that are in that like 150 range, you know, and you've got the Tampa Bay Rays, the Chicago Cubs show up there, a bunch of teams, incidentally, the Arizona Diamondbacks who are overperforming what we thought they would do are in my opinion, doing it because they took advantage of the new rules. They're putting guys at second. They're putting guys on third. They're the difference between having a guy on second and third for purposes of scoring is not like, oh, well, a single scores both. It is a sacrifice fly. It is you get a guy to third with less than two outs, you all of a sudden can get an out and a run at the same time. You can't do that if the guy's on second. And so I think that there are some team philosophies here too that, one, we're all going to dive into as fantasy managers in the next season. And maybe that means I'm more likely to take an Arizona Diamondback or a Cincinnati Red next year than taking a Colorado Rocky in the exact same place, because one of those teams is going to run and one of those teams is not going to run. But two, if I'm a team like the St. Louis Cardinals and I notice that the teams in my division who really overperformed were younger teams that were running a lot, I got some young guys who can run more. Maybe that means the Cardinals find a way to run more, right? Such a great point. Team philosophy is a huge part of what we do. And, and it gets, as you mentioned, it does get overlooked a lot. Look at the Giants, right? They're seen as one of the smartest teams in baseball. And I think they've done a very good job with a lot of times. And they did go after some big name free agents. For a second, they had Carlos Correa. And that obviously fell apart when, you know, Carlos Correa signed with 17 different teams before he ended up on the Twins. I'm just glad he ended up with somewhere because, you know, baseball's better when Carlos Correa is in it. But the Giants have obviously put the red light up. They, they're, they're actually a very efficient stolen base team, but they're just, they're not running where you can contrast that to the Reds where, and the Reds, they're not going to win the World Series, but what a fun team. It, it's funny. It's a little disappointing to me that Ellie De La Cruz has hit this tailspin where he hasn't hit anything for like five weeks because he comes up and he's just fun. And he, he had that moment with the Milwaukee game where he stole second, third at home, all in the same at bat. And, there's a swagger to that team. And, and they had all these, you, know, you mentioned McLean being one of your pickups and Encarnacion Strand was one of my hits. And I actually had Ellie on a team that um, I, I'm not playing him the final week of the season. And I feel very sad about that. I'm just like, oh, don't worry, Ellie, you'll still get a playoff share. You know, you've been good to me. I know you hit 226 for my team. It doesn't matter. I enjoyed you so much. And the category juice made you valuable anyway, but the Reds were just in a lot of ways, a flashpoint for this new season, right? Where, what has baseball tried to do? They want to bring more batted balls. They want to have more speed, more stolen bases. There's been over some overhaul to the prospect cadences, right? And what's more frustrating than this player is ready for the major leagues and we're going to hold them down for BS reasons. Nobody enjoys that except the teams who maybe get a year of cost control. And then you wonder if that's even worth it, right? Sometimes it, it fractures the player and management relationship down the road. But again, I don't think the Reds are going to win the world series, but they um they are in a lot of ways a team that symbolizes what this season was about yeah i think that's absolutely right and don't get me wrong like not all the teams who are leading in stolen bases are doing great the kansas city royals are second with 159 stolen bases mm -hmm. and aside from like a nice little swing these last few weeks where they seem to want to play spoiler like the royals have not been a very good team the the a's are also in this mix like and the a's are historically bad so it's not a guarantee that if you run more you are going to be a good team. But, you know, you were talking about the San Francisco Giants. They have 54 stolen bases total. Ronald Acuna has run more 
than the entirety of the San Francisco Giants. Uh, the Colorado Rockies are second to last with 69. There's a non-zero chance that Ronald Acuna Jr. will steal more bases than the entirety of the Colorado Rockies and the entirety of the San Francisco Giants. That is wild to me. And I think that teams are going to have to adjust a little bit to some of these new rules if they if they want to continue to win. And then we have to adjust our expectations too, because there are just going to be some places that are better for these categories than others. You know, another stolen base guy I wanted to talk about who actually was probably one of my favorite, like, you know, I don't think leagues are, yes, leagues are one on draft day and they're one with the, you got Matt McLean on the waiver wire and he did great things for you for two months and it was wonderful. They are also one with role players who you take a chance on. One of my favorite pickups there, who I'm absolutely keeping an eye on for next draft season, is Johan Rojas with the Phillies. The Phillies had their depth kind of hammered uh, in center field when Brandon Marsh got hurt, Christian Pache got hurt. They already not a great defensive team out there. They're trying to run Kyle Schwarber and Nick Castellanos out there. And so they called up real young kid, 23 year old Rojas. He's got a WRC plus so far this season of 107, which is better than anyone thought he would do uh, coming into this season. But more importantly, he's got 14 stolen bases and 140 plate appearances. And he lost the job in center field when Marsh and Pache got, came back, but within a week he had taken it back again. So that tells me that the Phillies see a defensive guy and I see a guy who's stealing a bag every 10 times he's at the plate, which I absolutely want that dude on my team. Young guy, defender, great offense around him, and the Phillies are letting him run. Let's go. Again, after you speak, I always have like five things I want to say, and I have to decide what's what I have time for because we can't talk for three hours. But you said earlier in the show, you talked about the importance of minding the gap between fantasy and real life value. And then you were talking about some of the teams that aren't winning teams but are okay with running. I, I'm reminded of the year Jonathan VR had with the Orioles a few years ago where they were bad and they just said, okay, John, run whenever you want. And Jonathan VR for his career, his OPS plus is under 100. He's a below average offensive player, but he had a little bit of pop and he played for a couple of teams. And the Royals are one of those teams now where it's like, what, what do they have to sell? We'll come to the park and watch Bobby Witt steal two bases and strike out a couple of times. And, you know, maybe his OBP is under 300. But I mean, he's a better, even though I think Bobby Witt will eventually be a great player. Right now, he's more valuable for fantasy than he is as a real life player. I mean, he's really young, and he'll, you know, again, I think the trajectory is obviously pointed up for him. And the fact that he made it to the major leagues at such a young age portends really well for his future. But sometimes when I'm looking for stolen bases, I wonder about what, again, is it the team? Does the team want to run? But sometimes these losing teams, I think they just think, what do we have to sell? You know, what do the Oakland A's have to sell? Well, Estre Ruiz might steal 70 bases. You know, I don't, I don't know if that sold any tickets and that ballpark situation is such a mess. And I, I hate the fact they're probably going to lose their team, but uh, that is what it is. A player I'm curious about, I don't I don't know what to do with players like this. And I, and again, I, a lot of times I've fallen in love with a player like this and it's, and it's cost me. Lane Thomas was somebody who, and he was a hit for me this year. I drafted him medium and late in seasons. He had some moments as a decent leadoff man for Washington the previous year, although his overall stats were, were very ordinary, 241, 301, 404 slash, basically a league average hitter, had some categories, he was fine. Takes a step forward this year. I thought it was a sin he wasn't on the all-star team. 27 homers, 20 steals. He's a very high percentage stolen base guy. Not the greatest OBP, but 273, 19, 472, that plays. But a non-prospect, somebody who popped kind of late in his career, his ADP will rise significantly to what it was the previous year. A lot of people, Ron Chandler, somebody who subscribes to this, he would say anybody who jumps majorly in ADP, especially if they weren't really a prospect, those are dangerous guys to draft the next year. But then the flip side of it is that I think a lot of people will look at Lane Thomas's season suspiciously. It's, it's If Lane Thomas was, you know, baseball America cover boy and a top five overall pick and you know, was this touted prospect, that'd be one thing. But like, oh, here we go. He's one of the upcoming rising stars of baseball because nobody feels that way. I think you might get him maybe a few rounds later than you should because he's kind of a boring middle of his career guy. And yet sometimes these players just turn to pumpkins the next season. Uh, do you have a takeaway on the, the, these Lane Thomas guys who come out of nowhere or maybe specifically Lane Thomas himself? I have a couple of thoughts about Lane Thomas specifically, but also the team that Lane Thomas plays on because mm -hmm. so 
the Nationals had a handful of guys who punched well above their fantasy weight this year. And I've been um, one of the things I added to my portfolio this year is I've been doing the playing time tomorrow column for baseball HQ for the NL East. And so I've been watching the Nationals pretty closely. And one of the things I noticed about the Nationals and Davey Martinez is that Davey Martinez does not change his lineup very much at all. If you are a guy who slots into the two spot, you're probably going to slot there for two and a half months until you absolutely force your way out of that conversation, a la Luis Garcia. Like you can get at bats and playing time and just rack up numbers for the Washington Nationals in a way that you will never be able to for the San Francisco Giants, which means to me that a guy like Lane Thomas, the Nationals have a handful of these guys that I'm like, oh, all of these guys like are way above the value for where they went on draft day. Lane Thomas, CJ Abrams, Jamer Candelario, Joey Manessis. And admittedly, Manessis got off to a real slow start. And so it was one of those situations where you might have dropped Joey Manessis because you were like, I drafted him for power at first base. He's not giving me any power. And then all of a sudden, like after the all-star break, he went on a little bit of a tear there. There's Stone Garrett was on an yeah, he absolute was. heater right before he got hurt. Like I remember I would I had drafted a column about Stone Garrett's time is now, and then mm-hmm. Stone Garrett got hurt and I had to like reword the entire thing. But there's a bunch of guys in this nationals. Uh, lineup who are getting a ton of at bats. They're doing all the things that we want for fantasy purposes and their playing time is not in question, which I love a great fantasy option on a last place team. Those guys Mm -hmm. get overlooked all the time. Looking ahead to next season, a guy who I think probably fits the same type of bill, Nelson Velasquez gets traded to the Royals. They need power. Nelson Velasquez has power. He was absolutely blocked from ever having a corner outfield spot in Chicago. He has hit a bunch of home runs for the Kansas City Royals. He is just in the lineup every single day, hitting home runs and driving in runs. That's a guy who I'm going to be interested in, in the, you know, round 11 to 15, when a bunch of people are speculating on the Jock Peterson platoon. Why not just take Nelson Velasquez, who's going to play every day? Again, a lot of stuff to unpack that I, you know, love that you've uh, become part of the Baseball HQ family and doing that great playing time today stuff. Because it's as you said, you can men- you can notice managerial patterns. There is value to be mined. Does the Nationals lineup go nine deep? No, not for fantasy purposes. But has Abrams been unbelievably valuable the second half of the season? Lane Thomas, who was batting near the bottom of the order for the first month, he gets that promotion right around May first, sometime in early May. He's basically batted in prime real estate since then because this offense can support at least half of it. You know, Candelario before he was traded was really good. You mentioned Stone Garrett, who had. He was, he was a, a guy I picked up everywhere. And just when he was hitting his stride, he got hurt, which is a shame because one, he was really productive. Plus two, I, I like picking up a guy who sounds like he's in Pearl Jam. So it just, <laughs> uh, I was, I was really enjoying the Stone Garrett moment. And just when I started enjoying it, it was over. You mentioned the Royals. Um, and then again, you're mining the, the lesser teams uh, for value because they're not as buzzy. They're not as, you know, they're not as high profile. One player I can't, I can't figure out. And he, I did not pick up. Cole Raggins anywhere, and he's actually contending. Uh, he's one of the leagues I think I'm going to win. My major competitor has him, and I just hate it when he pitches because I'm like, okay, here comes seven innings, one run, 11 strikeouts. Just get it over with. I hope he doesn't win the game somehow. But uh, how do you handle a guy like this who, I mean, Texas needed pitching, right? They didn't think they were getting rid of anything of value. He's been so good. It's still obviously a small sample. All baseball analysis comes down to sample size at some point. How do you possibly project him for next season? Man, I have no idea. Uh, so I was listening to um, Sleeper in the Bus, great, great podcast that Paul Score and Justin Mason do. And it was the episode where they had Nick Pollock on. And Nick Pollock is a Cole Reagan's believer. And so mm-hmm. y- you really should just go back and listen to it for yourself because Nick Pollock has so much energy and he's so great. And I love listening to him talk about fantasy sports all the time. But him talking about a player he truly believes in mid-transition is just truly mm-hmm. next level. Um Go back and listen to it. I promise you will not regret it. I love all, I, all, all three of those guys, by the way. Justin, oh, all of them know, are phenomenal. This is not to put anybody above one. For sure. For I mean, Justin, you know, comes up with TGFBI. How do you know what's the definition of a good idea? You wish you thought of it. I mean, just getting the TGFBI thing off the ground is so awesome. Just like the fishbowl is fantastic for fantasy football, and and Paul Spore is, you know, when I'm thinking, he I care about all of his fantasy baseball thoughts, but. When I want to know about a pitcher, he's one of my favorite guys to go to. Plus, I, I remember when when I had my baseball podcast at Yahoo. I don't have it anymore. But 
Paul was on. The show was ostensibly supposed to be 50 or, four, uh, 100, uh, 50 or 60 minutes. I think we talked for an hour and a half and I could have talked for three <laughs> hours just about being silly and baseball and drafts and pop culture. I mean, all three of those guys are just natural treasures. And I, it's so great that they do a show together. I mean, that, that Justin and Paul do, and then they get to have people like Nick Pollock, who I'm pitcher list fit. You know, I, I go back to when there weren't that many sites, obviously baseball HQ is a legacy site and it's one of the most important sites out there. It always will be. But just look at how different the landscape is. You know, 10 years ago, there's no picture list. You know, 15 years ago, there's no fan graphs. You know, 25 years ago, nobody has the internet yet, except for like a few wackos like me. But you know, baseball reference, I don't think came about until maybe 2002 or 2003. We really live. I, look, I don't know that I'm any smarter now, but we live in the age of enlightenment. And I just love being in the middle of it. Absolutely. Well, to go back to Raggins, the Raggins, like I am torn here. I am mm -hmm. one. I don't think I'm going to wind up with him anywhere. Because there are guys like Nick who are going to go all in and they will probably get him two rounds before I'm willing to get him and I will miss out as a result. But that doesn't mean that he is not super intriguing and I would love him to fall to me. What I love about what he did and I and retweet everything you said about all the sites and all the wonderful people doing work out here. Um, the What I love about what Cole did particularly, I think the Rangers just missed on him. Mm -hmm. I think he was doing work that was really beneficial that he believed in himself. The Rangers didn't see it for whatever reason, traded him to the Royals. And now the real interesting question for me is, can he keep that up in a Royals situation that I'm not, I don't know. I don't think of the Royals as being great with pitching infrastructure. And I hope I'm wrong because this breakout is re like, looks real and looks super interesting. And aside from those, that like one situation where he had those three wild pitches back to back. And I was like, Oh, what is going on right now? He just seems to be lights out. I'm not sure I'm going to wind up with any Cole Reagans next year. And mm -hmm. I still think he's a super interesting guy. Well, it's funny. I think back to there was a time where the Orioles, just everything they did with young pitching didn't work out. And then guys would leave and, you know, maybe it takes a couple organizations, but look at who Kevin Gossman is now. What's Jake Arrieta. Give? Right, Jake Arrieta for sure. Cy, Cy Young. <laughs> Jake Arrieta was one of my um, – not that this was all that difficult, but the year he won his Cy Young Award, I had him pretty much everywhere. I had him and AJ Pollock on like all of my teams. And um, if we were having that podcast, you know, now at the end of that season, I'd be like, oh yeah, great. I'm going to spend all this money. You know, I'll go to, I'll go to first pitch Arizona. I'll be on, on the, you know, the first place money that I have. That's not the season. <laughs> Only that, but I'm so busy with football. I can't go, which is terrible, but you're so right. It's, it's a wonderful convention and so many cool people and baseball game. Basically look, it's cool to be in a ballpark that's full, but there's also something to be said for you're at a ballpark where there's nobody there and you can sit right in front and you're just hanging out with your buddies and having a beer. That's, that's a pretty great experience too. But I share your fear and we don't know, like sometimes you'll see organizations seem to do things right. And you don't even know, is there a special sauce here? Is it their training staff? Is it their pitching coach? Is, is it their, the way they teach their catchers to frame? I mean, we're still trying to figure out, attribution can be really difficult. And if you look at the clouds long enough, you'll swear you see a pattern. But when I look at somebody like Brady Singer, and I know he's hurt right now, he's had a, a lost season and all that. I can't get past the fear that maybe the Royals don't know what they're doing with young pitching. Yeah. I mean, I share that fear a lot and I wonder how much an individual pitcher can overcome that. I think that some of them do. I think that there are pitchers who do their own workout plan or they, you know, tweak their own stuff or they go work with their own guy in the off season. And that's great. But I, I don't know how much that then gets either overridden by bad advice at the major league level. I don't want to, I don't know. For all I know that there's great advice going on here. I don't know what's being said there. This is all speculation, but I, I share that concern about the Royals in particular, you know, talking about starting pitching and, talking about podcasts going a little bit long. We're going a little bit long today, but that, that's okay. This is a great conversation. Um, for starting pitchers, I think one of the hardest things with the new rules was gauging who was going to be impacted by the pitch clock, who was not going to be impacted by the pitch clock, who was going to get impacted by the throwover rules. I think some guys clearly did better at this than others and, and who was not. And I mean, I'm just going to throw out a pitcher I very much believe in who struggled maybe more than any pitcher this season it'll be curious to see if he can rebound that's Alec Manoa who I I wanted Alec Manoa everywhere I did not get him anywhere and very lucky that I didn't get him anywhere because I think few pitchers struggled as much as Alec Manoa did 
this season. I wonder if that's something that the Blue Jays can work with him on, that he can tweak in the offseason. He can come back stronger. They can come up with some sort of conditioning plan or something that gets him back into that situation. And to, to bring this back full circle to our teaching conversation earlier, it may be that the clock just sets in a level of anxiety with some players that they mm. can't perform the same way that they did without the clock. And I hope that that's not true. That I don't think it's just Alec Manoa. I think there's a handful of guys who really fell off this season. And looking at the guys who didn't fall off bumps their value a ton for me. Alec, Alec Manoa was third in the Cy Young voting a year ago. Uh, and, and I realize Cy Young voting is, is kind of a goofy thing in and of itself. I I feel like I've spent so much time trying to figure out who's going to win the awards this year. It's um it's fun and it's a little bit stressful as well. But he was somebody everybody wanted. And it's funny, Sarah, if we had talked before the season, I would have tried to sell you on, oh, well, the dimensions are different. It might be really good for offense in Toronto. That wasn't the case at all. It went the other way. So we have a season where Toronto is ostensibly a good team. It becomes a more pitching-friendly park. And, and Alec Manoa just totally loses, I mean, 6.1 walks per nine innings. You know, his strikeout rate is actually kind of static, but you, you can't survive that way. And you wonder – so much of being successful in anything, especially in sports, is routine and visualization. And you get into a cadence and maybe some players didn't adjust to it very well. Um, and, and this has been a, a point of, of a lot of, of a lot of pitchers, a lot of veteran pitchers have said this, that, you know, I'm, I'm used to what pitch by pitch. It's supposed to be a certain series of things that I do and it takes a certain amount of time. You're telling me I can't do those things anymore. And uh, maybe it's, you know, maybe the problem with Mano was some of the adjustment to that. Whenever a pitcher goes bad, though, I, I just can't escape. The Manoa's made, what is it, 19 starts? He was in the minors for a while. You always wonder if we're going to hear after the season, oh, yeah, my, my forearm's been barking for four months. I didn't want to tell anybody. Or I, I haven't really had to grip on my curveball because every time I throw my elbow hurts. Or you always wonder if there's uh, an injury there. And, and sometimes you can get answers with that, like the context clues, the velocity can be down and stuff like that. I'm very curious to see where Manoa gets drafted last year because he was – dynamic his first year he easily could have won the Cy Young his second year and even though players careers aren't always linear it's not always like a plane taking off it just looked like okay he was great as a rookie he was one of the best pitchers in the American League as a second year pitcher why wouldn't he be great again yeah he, again, he was probably second third fourth round pick in every draft I get it I'm like you I wanted Manoa I didn't get him for happenstance reasons because life is random because the other 14 people get to make picks too i feel very lucky about that i have no idea how i'm going to approach him next year he's a fascinating guy and i think you know when when you convene in in november at first pitch he's going to be one of those guys people talk about what the heck do we do with manoa and some people will say what's well, a buy low it's a bounce back yeah, it's a post hype whatever you whatever phrase you want to use and um, I, I think there's a case for that it's just I would have to have three or four pitchers at least I already believed in before I would draft him. I don't think I can draft him. Like I, I yeah. think I'm out on Alec Manoa as much as I love him and as much as I hope that he rebounds and has a wonderful season. Like he is mm -hmm. one of a handful of guys that I'm probably going to run a search at some point this off season, looking at some key indicators, probably just K rate and BB rate, maybe ERA. I don't know. Uh, and just looking at the biggest movers between 2022 and 2023, as long as they had a big enough sample size and just see who really thrived in the new environment, who really struggled in the new environment. And that latter group is going to wind up being on a do not draft list. Let me, let me say one more thing about Manoa. I think he's when, when his breakdown is this extreme, I almost feel like all the statistical analysis in the world isn't, isn't going to mean anything. Cause it's going to be, it comes down to this. Something was broken with Alec Manoa this year. It could have been physical. It could have been mental but something was broken with him and he pitched in a way that is totally incongruent with the rest of his career. It doesn't make any sense. And so we have to figure out why that happened and have, have they fixed it in a lot? Again, a lot of times guys pitch through injuries and you find out later and you see stats that are horrible and you just have to just totally throw the season out. You know, I, I spent much of this summer, this is kind of not the exact same thing as Manoa, but debating what Lance Lynn was, right? Because he had, you know, the strikeouts were there and he was quote unquote unlucky. But I would say, well, what is what should his ERA be? Maybe it should still be over four. Maybe he still he maybe should be having a bad season or a disappointing season rather than a horrendous season. It's a little bit different because I, I don't think there was a, a total fall apart like maybe there was with Manoa. But I want my my feeling with Manoa and, and you talked about just 
being out on him next year. And that's probably the prudent thing. I mean, I, maybe I'll be, I'll come around to that. I, I talked to him up probably a little bit more optimistically a minute ago than maybe I really feel in my heart, but I'm not going to take these numbers at face value. I'm just trying. And, and a lot of this stuff is unknowable. I don't know him. I'm not in the Toronto Blue Jays clubhouse. I, you know, I know a few people around baseball, but I don't know anybody close enough to Toronto that you know, could give me an inkling to what's going on here. But I feel like whatever was broken with him makes the numbers just almost not just meaningless. You know, you, you have to try to figure out what could they fix him. He's obviously very young, which is the, the best thing you can say. And sometimes it takes a trade or it's a different voice in his ear. But I'm not going to take any of these numbers at face value because I don't think they make any sense. So it's a great thing to keep in mind. It's one of the reasons that we should all be watching uh, spring training with great interest next year for guys like Mano. Lots of guys, honestly, any guy that struggled or had a breakout this season. Uh, one of the things I love to do, and I talked about this in the second episode of the show with Mike Carter, a great player from Glarf who I've gotten to play against for a couple of years, is just debriefing the process of the season, your leagues, what worked and what didn't work. And I, I'm curious for you, Scott, how do you go about debriefing your leagues and what's your best piece of advice for that? Yeah, I, I try to study what what people won or ca- who cashed or won in the league and why. What was their strategy? How did they build their roster? What was their fab you know, flow? Did they make a lot of trades? Did they not make a lot of trades? And I'm always trying to figure out what what did you have to get? What did you have to acquire on the draft? And what did you have to get? What could you get maybe more freely and, and things like that? So I, I'm one copy the winners, right? History is winning by the history is written by the winners and try to see what they're doing, especially if it's a league. You know, again, I, I mentioned my labor, my labor records actually been pretty good the last few years, but I still haven't won and I haven't won tout. And I've had kind of too many mediocre tout finishes in a row. It's, it's, it's kind of a, I have to say to myself, what am I not doing right? I think I might have said this uh, to you maybe before we started taping that, I, you know, was I not grinding enough on the weekend and, and noticing a, something, a news item moved an hour, 30 minutes before my bid that I need to be incorporating that I'm not doing. Another another great cheat that I do do every week in FAB is that once FAB results start coming in, study those and try to learn from the FAB, the whole graph that comes out. And then apply them to the bids that you have later that night. That's just one of the all-time great cheating hacks for Fab. But for the most part, I would say study study what the winners did, and, and also be nice to your commissioner. It's such a thankless job, and so be good to those people because they're the reasons why we have these leagues. That's why I always send a nice note to Jeff and to Todd and to, to Ron and all those guys, everybody on the tout board, on the tout board, because I appreciate what they do. That's a great call out uh, on both parts, but. It's- our commissioners, I, I think that those are that's a really rough job over the course of the year. They hear all the complaints and all the problems and none of the solutions and none of the praise. We wouldn't have these leagues without them. Um, so thank you for reminding everyone about that. What is your best piece of advice for a person reviewing or looking at their uh, leagues at the end of the season, hoping to improve for next year? Yeah, I wanted to think about you. You mentioned I, I forget what you called them, but you mentioned some of the leagues that you did that were just draft and watch. And I'm always thinking about where can I get in reps, where can I get in practice. Again, and I apologize, I've mentioned fantasy football a lot in the show because I, I don't know how many people cross over and play both. But one thing that fantasy football figured out a few years ago is this idea of a best ball draft, where you draft, you have all the fun of drafting, but then the, the league runs itself, and you have to do any of the maintenance. And what that turned into for me, it was like a driving range where it's like, okay, I'm going to learn the player pool because I'm going to do a bunch of these drafts. There's stake in the game, there's skin in the game. I can win something, but for the most part, it's a chance to figure out the player pool. Baseball has started to incorporate more of those formats and they can be at different price points. You you don't necessarily have to spend a ton of money, although if you want to spend more money, you can, but I think that's the best way to get ready for every draft season is just to get more reps and get to the driving range more, get more, knowledge of the player pool what happens if we talked about we we don't want to take a closure in the early rounds but what if you do what does your roster look like what if you go pitching heavy what if you go hitting heavy uh fool around with different strategies so um, for newer players i would say everybody's comfort level is different everybody's level of saturation is different but one of the great things about those draft and watch leagues is that you get the experience and the um, skill and then the, the pool knowledge from drafting. And yet you don't have, Oh my God, I have so many teams. I can't handle this because they don't require any season maintenance during the year. 
that's an excellent piece of advice. I, I love a good mock draft too. Like just getting into a room with a bunch of smart people and figuring out what's going on. I dissect other people's mock drafts for the same reason. I just think it's really interesting to see why people made the decisions that they did. One of the uh, greatest pieces of advice I took this season that helped me a lot was um, I had Jose Ramirez as like a first round pick in a bunch of places. And in fact, I had set my KDS to try to get Jose Ramirez in, in a bunch of places. And Jenny Butler and I were out to dinner uh, the night before the Glarf draft and I was talking and we we're talking about our strategy. We we're on other ends of the board. And I was, you know, saying, yeah, I'm probably going to go with Jose Ramirez. She's like, you've gone with Jose Ramirez everywhere. Like see what happens when you take an outfielder. So I took Julio Rodriguez instead in that league. That league didn't work out for me for a bunch of other reasons, but it was absolutely great advice and helpful because Jose Ramirez went second and I had the third pick. So I would not have gotten him anyway. And it gave me a backup strategy that I felt really comfortable with. Practice makes perfect. Mock drafts are where it's at. Uh, definitely try some of those best ball leagues, draft and holds. Uh, see what happens with some gladiator drafts this fall if you are so inclined. And Scott, where can people find you? Where can they find this great advice and your work? Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's been a lot of fun, Sarah. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, Scott underscore Pianowski, uh, P-I-A-N-O-W-S-K-I is where I am on Twitter. And my work is at Yahoo Sports where you know, a lot of baseball, a lot of football, Occasionally we duck in some golf or some basketball or some hockey, but um, Yahoo is, is a really fun place to play. The user interface is very intuitive. The apps are great. And um, I love to talk anything on Twitter. I mean, I love to talk sports, of course, but talk music, talk movies. You know, um, I took a picture of a lemonade stand this weekend. So um, let's be friends on Twitter. Let's uh, play fantasy wherever. But if you like it on Yahoo, uh, we'd love to have you. Awesome. Great stuff. You can find me at BCB underscore Sarah on all of the sites except for Blue Sky, which doesn't allow underscore for some reason. So it's just at BCB Sarah there. Uh, you can find my work at bleedcubbyblue.com if you are so interested in following the Cubs attempt to make a postseason for the first time in a couple of years. Or if you're looking for my fantasy work, it is at Baseball HQ um, and also at Sportstopia. Thank you so much for joining me, Scott. We will be back next week looking to recap the MLB season. Until next time, best of luck in your leagues, everybody.